Father God, we ask that you would teach us your word by the power of your Holy Spirit now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, after last Sunday, Brother Ron was so convicted by his own sermon that he and Prissy drove to North Carolina to renew their wedding vows. I'm just kidding. I don't think that was his catalyst for going. Uh, But as you know, Brother Ron and Prissy and James and Suzanne and a few others from our church have gone to a Festivals of Marriage retreat in Ridgecrest, North Carolina. And so as Clyde said, you're stuck with us. So I apologize for that in advance. Um, But last week, Ron did talk to us uh, about the importance of loving our spouses, what it means to truly love our husband or our wife as Christ has loved us. Now, most of us remember uh, when we first thought as teenagers or children uh, that we were in love. Remember those days when Nothing else in life seemed to matter for a short time than your relationship with him or her. Maybe you stayed up late at night talking on the phone for hours. Uh, Nowadays, it would probably be texting on the phone for hours. Or maybe you wrote love notes back and forth. Uh, Or maybe you uh, daydreamed about the possibility of a future together. Or maybe you... Uh, or I were the one that just sat back and just hoped that that other person would acknowledge that we even exist. Now, young people, if you haven't experienced this yet, you most likely will someday, uh, but don't rush it, because those of you that have experienced this know that it doesn't last. We have words to describe this uh, emotional romantic high. We call it infatuation or puppy love. It's a long shot from a dedicated commitment to one's husband or wife. And just like there is a drastic difference between infatuation or romantic feelings and commitment in lifelong marriage, there is also a vast difference between being amazed by who Jesus is and genuine faith in him. And God desires that we know the difference. And so that's our aim this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 4, the passage that Eric read for us earlier this morning. But a little bit of background about the Gospel of John. Believe it or not, John wrote the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, so he was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. He witnessed Jesus' miracles, he heard Jesus speaking and teaching, and John uh, arranged his Gospel to include specific elements Uh, and teaching situations and miracles about Jesus. Now, he didn't just compile random things that he had seen or heard together. He he wrote them for a purpose. He wrote with an agenda. And he's very clear what that agenda is. In fact, in the very first chapter of John, he begins to tell us who Jesus is, right from the bat. You know that passage in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's telling us that Jesus not only existed in the beginning with God, Jesus created everything, and he even says in verse 1 that Jesus is, in fact, God. So right off the bat, John makes no reservations about it. He wants us to know who Jesus is, and that's consistent with his entire gospel, his entire book. In fact, if you turn over to John chapter 20, and you don't have to turn there, but if you have your Bible, 
uh, with you. You might want to quickly. John chapter 20, toward the end of his gospel, he tells us why he wrote wrote his gospel. Why he wanted to to leave behind these specific stories uh, for his readers. And that includes us today. So he tells us very clearly why he wrote his gospel in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So we know not everything Jesus did is in this book, only some things. John carefully selected what he was going to include and what he wasn't, uh, what fit his message primarily, and also for the sake of space, he couldn't include everything. Verse 31, this is what we really want to hear. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's right there, very clear. John tells us why he writes his gospel, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Now I hope this morning that we'll see that Jesus desires much more than our attention. He desires our full trust in who he is. He desires to do much more than just catch our attention, our glimpse. He wants us to genuinely have life-changing faith in him based on what he has uh, said to us. Well, the context of John chapter 4, so you can turn back to John 4 now. uh, The context of this passage we're going to be looking at where Jesus heals the official son that you heard earlier uh, comes right after Jesus has passed through Samaria. And we cannot fully understand what, John is, or, uh, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 4 uh, if we don't understand where he's just been and who he's just ministered to and what he's just done. So, remember for a moment your geography of ancient Israel. I promise I'll keep this short. This is not going to be much of a geography or history lesson. But remember, this is important to the story. In northern Israel... The northern part of the country during Jesus' time was known as Galilee. This is where Nazareth was. This is where the Sea of Galilee was. This is where Capernaum was. In the south, the southern part of Israel was known as Judea. This is where Jerusalem was, the religious center of Israel, the religious center of the Jews. But in between, in between Judea in the south... And Galilee in the north was the region known as Samaria. And Samaria housed numerous Samaritans. Makes sense, doesn't it? Samaritans lived in Samaria. Now, Samaritans were half-breeds between Jews and Assyrians. Remember in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern part of Israel And they took many captives with them. And during the the years that followed, many Jews intermarried with Assyrians. And that's why we have Samaritans. Now, why is this important? This is important because other Jews despised Samaritans. They didn't like them. They thought they were traitors. They had intermarried with with the foreign people, associating themselves with false religions pagan gods, pagan practices, and all these types of things. So Jews made efforts, very intentional efforts, to avoid Samaritans, often at all costs. But Jesus, as you know, was different. 
He didn't pay much attention to cultural norms of his day. In fact, he was departing from Judea, remember, in the south, and going to minister in Galilee in the north. And in order to do that, the the easiest travel route was obviously to go straight through Samaria. And so that's what Jesus did. So the text tells us in John 4 that Jesus came to a town called Sychar in Samaria. There he met the woman at the well. Most of you know that story. Jesus ministered to this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He began uh, to tell her that he could offer her living water, uh, eternal life, uh, revealed himself to her as the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And this was shocking because a Jewish male like Jesus would not normally talk to a Samaritan woman. So she was blown away. So much so that she believed in Jesus. She put her faith in Jesus, and so did much of her town. Back up with me uh, to verse 39 of John chapter 4. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So Jesus has this successful or fruitful ministry in Samaria, among Samaritans. Those that Jews, even religious Jews, despised. Nevertheless, though, after two days, he set out from Samaria and went to Galilee. And that's where we pick up our story for this morning. Verse 43, after the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Verse 45, When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Now that's kind of a confusing couple of verses, uh, because we have this little insert. Jesus had said uh, that a prophet receives no honor in his home country. And then the very next verse, the Galileans are welcoming him. They're glad that he's here. Um, What Jesus is saying, and the best way to understand this is in light of the previous passage with the Samaritan woman. That's why it's so foundational for understanding this passage that we understand what Jesus has just done in Samaria. So when Jesus says a prophet receives no honor in his home country, he's talking about about among his own people, among Jews. So Jesus has been ministering in Judea among Jews, and he goes north into Samaria, those that are outcast, rejected by Jews, and then back into Galilee among Jews again. So he's been on Jewish turf, he's been on Samaritan turf, now he's back on Jewish turf, and he's, he's creating this, uh, this tension between Jews and Samaritans and their receptivity of the gospel. So the Galileans welcomed Jesus. Well, why would Jesus say that Uh, they're not going to honor him, and then we immediately read after that that they welcome him. Well, if we look back in chapter 2, verse 23, we read about Jesus being in Jerusalem already at the Passover. And so while he was there, this is chapter 2, verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. 
But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So what's important for us here is that Jesus knew the situation of the heart. These people received him because they had seen him do miraculous signs. They had seen him do things that normal people could not do, and they were drawn to it. They were impressed by it. They were amazed by this man, especially how he could help them. They were interested in how he could meet their needs. Jesus knew that they weren't really interested in making him their savior. They weren't really interested in acknowledging him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, which is what Jesus was really here uh, to promote, right? The truth, the gospel. And so he saw through their uh, outer welcome to the condition of their heart. Now we read about this over and over again in the Gospels, whether it's John's Gospel or another Gospel, we read about Jews who were drawn to Jesus. Think about uh, the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000. These people witness Jesus do amazing things. They're drawn to him. They're impressed by him. But where are they when he dies? Where are they at the end of the Gospel? They're no longer there. They've had these encounters with Jesus over and over again, and obviously, it doesn't really affect them long term. That's because they didn't have the kind of faith that Jesus uh, desired for them and for us to have. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and draw a correlation to our situation today. You know, we come together week after week as church people, and we sing praises to God, and we look at His Word, and we fellowship together, And so often, we leave as if nothing is any different. Now, maybe you don't. I know I do, and I'm convinced that many others do as well. We come in this place, we have this encounter with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Creator of all things, God in the flesh, and then we leave as if it's just another day. Nothing's different. Yeah, maybe we get excited about the choral praise. And maybe we get excited when a child comes forward and and recognizes his or her need for Christ. And we should. Or maybe we even uh, like the stories we read about Jesus in Scripture. We find them fascinating or interesting. But are we really changed by this encounter with God? Do we really have the kind of faith that says, Yes, Lord, I believe the things that you taught about yourself. I believe the things that that you said about yourself based on what you did, based on the evidence in my own life and other people's life. Because if we really believe it, I believe it's going to change us. We're no longer going to want to just talk and think and act in ways that we desire. We're going to want to talk and think and act and live in ways that we know bring glory and honor to our God because he is our God. The Galileans did not have that kind of faith. Yeah, they were drawn to Jesus. Who wouldn't be? He was doing incredible things. But they did not really believe. Let's pick up the story again in verse 46. 
So Jesus has come into Galilee. They welcomed him. Verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So here enters this royal official into the picture. He's heard about Jesus. He probably doesn't really know Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is, but he's heard that he has done amazing things. He's heard that he can do things that normal people can't do, that he can perform miracles, and this man needs a miracle. His son is on his deathbed. He's about to die. And so so this royal official makes the journey from Capernaum about 16 miles away to Cana to meet Jesus there, to beg him, to plead with him, Jesus, please come and heal my son. He's desperate. His son's dying. No one else can help. He goes to Jesus. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. That seems kind of odd. But once again, Jesus sees the condition of the heart. And this is in the plural. Unless you people. So he responds to the official, but he's obviously talking to the Galileans at large as well. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't ever believe. So he sees through the official's desire for his son to be healed. uh, And he sees somebody asking uh, for their own gain. Not really interested, once again, in genuine faith in Jesus. Not really interested in welcoming in the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is someone who just sees Jesus... uh, able to meet his own needs. Now, nothing wrong with that, as we'll get to in the rest of the story, but this is the same way with the Galileans. The Galileans were impressed by Jesus. They were fascinated by Jesus. They had seen him do amazing things, but that's not what Jesus came for. He didn't come to draw a crowd. He didn't come to gain a following. If he would have, why would he not have taken the moment when the Galileans saw these things? They were amazed by him. We look back in chapter 2. They were drawn to him. They were, text says they wanted to believe in him. Why on earth, Jesus, would you not stop there and explain the truth to them and gain a following for yourself? It's because Jesus had a greater agenda. And that's, he wanted genuine faith. And he wasn't getting that from these people. Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. So as a royal official, we don't know much about this man. We don't know if he was a Gentile or a Jew, but we know that he had a certain level of political authority based on his position. He would have worked under Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee during Jesus' time. And so he was used to telling people, do this, and they would do it. Here he commands Jesus. That's what it is. It's a command. Sir, come down before my child dies. And how does Jesus respond? He responds with his own command, emphasizing his own authority. Verse 50, go, your son will live. Now some translations say you may go. In fact, the NIV said you may go, and now they've, the updated NIV says go. It is a command. This is not a suggestion. Jesus is saying go, your son will live. So 
The official commands Jesus. Jesus commands back, emphasizing his own authority, that it's greater, uh, that it's more powerful based on his status, his position. Go, your son will live. Now, at this point, this official uh, really has a life-changing decision to make. He has a pivotal moment of faith right here. How's he going to respond? Is he going to wait and, and continue to plead and beg Jesus, come back to Capernaum with me, heal my son, not going without Jesus with him? Because that's really what he wanted to do, right? He came to Jesus, come with me, please come with me, heal my son. So is he going to stay there and insist that Jesus come with him, showing that he doesn't really trust Jesus, which perhaps wouldn't have led to his son's healing? Uh, Or does he go and begin to make that long journey back to Capernaum with no outward assurance that his son is really going to live? Does he stay? Does he go? The passage says he goes. The man took Jesus at his word and departed, showing that he trusted Jesus, that he had genuine faith in Jesus, knowing that Jesus was someone special, knowing that Jesus could heal from a distance. I want to pause here again and say a word or two about us today. You know, every time we hear the gospel proclaimed, we face a pivotal moment of faith. Whether we hear the gospel through a sermon, whether we hear the gospel through a Bible study, whether we hear the gospel through a conversation with a family member or a friend, through our own personal devotion, through prayer, however you hear the gospel, when you hear it, you have an opportunity to respond. We all do. And that response is something like this. Do we really believe it? Do we really believe the claims of Jesus? Because he made some pretty strong ones. Do we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Because if we do, it's going to make a difference in our lives. Or do we walk away as if it's just another interesting story? Something that we've grown casual with. This is Jesus, the Son of God. A beautiful message that God came to us in the flesh and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Do you believe that? That Jesus did for you and for me what we cannot accomplish. That Jesus is the creator of all things, yes. He's the sustainer of all things. But he's also the redeemer of those who cannot save themselves. That's you and me. When we hear the gospel, when we encounter Jesus... We face the necessary opportunity to respond. And I'm not just talking about a one-time response in faith to Christ. Yes, I believe that we, we do have that moment in our lives where we realize, hey, this, I believe this. This is true. I'm going to live by it. But this is an everyday thing. This is, this is a journey. This is a life. This is a relationship. And so every time that we encounter God through His Word then we have to respond to it. You know, there's a difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. 
Jesus desires that we know more than about him. He desires that we be more than just fascinated by him. He desires that we do more than just talk about him. He desires that our wishes and our dreams and our aspirations and our wants shift and become what he desires for us. Because if we really believe in him, if we really have the genuine faith that he requires of us, then we're going to want what he wants. We're going to want to do things that honor him. We're going to want to follow after him. We're going to want to be faithful to him, to be obedient to him. And that means laying aside some of our own wishes, sacrificing some of our own desires. Remember Jesus' invitation? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Genuine faith in Christ will do that. On the surface, it doesn't sound very appealing. It doesn't sound very fun to, to crucify your own desires and wants. But, but what we find when we're drawn to Christ and when we really believe in him and in the gospel message, then our wants, our desires change. And they become what he wants. And we find joy in it. Well, let's finish the story. Verse 51. So Jesus has just commanded the official to go that his son would live. And this is more than just a prediction. This is more than just a prophecy. This is not Jesus looking ahead down the road saying, that boy's going to make it. Yeah, he's going to live. You can go. No. At that moment, Jesus is healing the son from a distance. Power is going out from Jesus. He is in control of the situation. He's in control of the circumstance. So the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Verse 51 While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, I don't know, you may have been taught this. I think I was as well, and maybe even some of us taught this, that this was the second miracle that Jesus did in his ministry. Well, if we take John's gospel seriously, it actually wasn't. This was the second miracle that Jesus did in Galilee. Remember back to chapter 2? All these people had witnessed Jesus doing miraculous signs at the Passover. So, and then this is consistent with John's message, his theme at the end of the gospel as well, that not all the things Jesus did were recorded in the book. Uh, but John tells us that this was the second miracle that Jesus did when he went from Judea to Galilee. So here's what happened. The official takes Jesus at his word. He shows a genuine trust in Jesus. And he begins on that journey home, 16 miles toward Capernaum. And the next day, the very next day, he runs into his servants along the way with some news, some good news, that his son who was close to death, his son that was sick, about to die, is now alive. He's doing well. There's been a dramatic change in his circumstances, so much so that his servants thought it was imperative for them to go and tell their master. And so the official's excited. And he asks, when did this take place? When did the, the, the turn of events happen? Yesterday at one in the afternoon. And then he realizes, hey, that's the time that Jesus told me my son would live. 
There's no doubt in his mind that Jesus was the one who performed that miracle. And as a result, the passage says that he and his whole household believed in Jesus. Now, this wasn't the beginning of his faith in Jesus. Remember? It was a, a, a statement of faith by going, by taking Jesus at his word and going. But this event did validate and confirm his faith in Christ. And as a result, Jesus had a fruitful ministry among his family. His whole household believed. Now, Jesus desires this kind of genuine faith from you and from me. He doesn't just want our sympathy in the fact that he died a horrendous death for us. Jesus doesn't want our sympathy. He doesn't want our amazement uh, in the fact that he lived over 30 years on this, wor- on this earth without engaging in a single sin. He doesn't just want our nominal allegiance because it's an acceptable thing to be associated with him and with the church in Birmingham, Alabama. No, he wants genuine, life-changing faith in him. And genuine faith, real belief that Jesus is who he says he is, changes us. We've seen that. It changes us. So my question this morning is, do you really believe? Do you really believe, and are you really dedicated to your Savior? Because he's worth it. He's worthy of it. If he's who he says he is, he's worth our whole lives. He's worth radical surrender to him. If he's not, then why would we even get together? I'm convinced that uh, lack of this kind of faith is actually very common in the church. Uh, and here's one of the reasons why. I'm going to mention just a couple of statistics to you that were found by Barna Research Group, which is a research group that surveys Americans and their, about their faith and how it impact, impacts their life. Uh, And this is something that they found just three or four years ago. Only 15% of those who regularly attend a Christian church ranked their relationship with God as the top priority in their life. Now, this is people who regularly go to a Christian church. Only 15% said their relationship with God was the top priority in their life. Well, newsflash, if you really believe in the gospel, if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he was, did what scripture says that he did, uh, then God's going to be at the top of your list. Because he can't, he can't be elsewhere. God doesn't ask to be anywhere else. If you believe this, then it begins to impact everything you do. Everything else becomes secondary and tertiary and on and on. This is Uh, foundational. Now another one. Here's another uh, statistic for you. This is a survey done among those Christians who claim to be born-again Christians. So among born-again Christians, less than one out of every five had a biblical outlook on life. Uh, Now maybe that doesn't mean much, so I'm going to define how they define biblical outlook. They say that a biblical outlook was defined as believing these things. Number one, that absolute moral truth exists. Number two, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles it teaches. Number three, that Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. Number four, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. 
Number five, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And number six, that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and the creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Once again, you cannot claim Scripture as the Word of God. You cannot believe what Scripture says about itself, that it is God-breathed, that it is uh, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, and deny any of those things. They're pretty clear foundational elements of Scripture, yet among people who would claim to be born-again Christians in the United States, less than 20% would sign off on all those things. So obviously, there's a disconnect somewhere. There's a disconnect between people who associate themselves with the church or with Jesus and genuine faith and belief in Him. Now, the purpose of John's gospel, as we've already seen, is that we would have genuine faith, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world, and nothing short. He doesn't desire anything short. Jesus doesn't desire uh, us to associate ourselves with him only. He doesn't desire for us just to be impressed by what he can do. He desires us to believe in him and to follow after him. Now what amazes me about this passage coming right after the passage in Samaria, is that Jesus knew exactly how the Jews would respond to him. He knew that very few Galileans and very few Jews would have genuine faith in him. He had just had this fruitful ministry in Samaria, and he only stayed there two days. He kept going, knowing that when he entered Galilee, he would be welcomed by crowds that really weren't that interested in who he was. And we read in the very next passage following this one that he's back in uh, Judea and he heals a man on the Sabbath and the Jewish religious leaders begin persecuting him. And you know the story. The rest of his life, the rest of his ministry, he is constantly being attacked verbally and eventually physically by his own people, by the Jews. But what does he do? He continues on his mission. He doesn't let that change his course. That's the kind of God that we serve. A God that sets aside his own comforts for our well-being, for our salvation, so that you and I would have life with him, so that our relationship with the Father could be restored. Even though he knew he would be rejected and beaten, persecuted and crucified, Jesus stood the course. He stayed on mission Because he loves us. That's the God that we serve. And knowing Jesus is far, far different, as Brother Ron pointed out last week, than knowing about Jesus. Knowing about Jesus, like the people in our story for the most part this morning did, doesn't change much of anything. But when you know Jesus, it changes everything. It changes our outlook on life. It changes the way... Uh, that we live day to day. It changes our priorities. If you really believe him, then you're going to be dedicated to him. Now back to the marriage thing. You know that feelings, infatuation, 
is not enough to sustain lifelong marriage. It requires a faith commitment on the part of two people, a dedicated commitment to one another. Well, being impressed by Jesus, being associated with Jesus, being somewhat drawn to Jesus is not enough. You've got to have genuine, life-changing faith in him. Do you have faith in Jesus or something less? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way that it speaks to us time and time again. Lord, we thank you that truth is found in your word, uh, not in anything that we could say. And so, Father, I ask that you've been honored this morning. I pray that you've been honored. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself and that we would have that kind of genuine faith in you that changes us day after day after day to be more like the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.